Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to a Wednesday afternoon edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I am joined as I am every Wednesday afternoon, my good friend of Fangraphs, John Taylor. John, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm doing quite all right. How about yourself? Not too bad. Not too bad, John. Um, it's not on my list. It's not on my list, but our teams are going the opposite way. At this, Some, at this somewhat moment. opposite, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where are you at with your Boston Red Sox? Is it is it over? Are you, are you have you succumbed to reality? What what where are you at right now? I don't know. I mean, I I guess like if I had to pick like one of the Kubler Ross stages of grief, I think I'm already <laughs> kind of at like. The thing is, I, there really wasn't much grief because once they punted the deadline, it kind of mentally I just went, okay, well then that's the end of that, because. Mm-hmm. And I've harped on this a million times, and I don't want to keep harping on it because I really don't want to be a broken record. But when you have a team that has flaws, that has holes that need patching, and is all and is not just winning, but in a position where they're at the top of the division and they they need that boost to keep them up there, and you don't do anything, why should you be surprised that this is the end result? You know, and and that that's kind of my thing. It's like if you don't want to invest in the team, if you don't want to add to it, if you don't want not even add to it, if you don't want to fix what's wrong, well then why should there be any surprise when things start breaking? You didn't do anything to fix it, you know, and which isn't to say that like the, the Red Sox were leaking oil and, and had two blown tires coming into the deadline. It wasn't like they were in, in disastrous shape. They weren't the Mets by any stretch of the imagination. But I do think that, yeah, I, I just for me, like once they once they decided they were not going to make any moves to the deadline, which I understand on a, on a couple levels. To me, it just became a matter of like, okay, well, then this is probably not going to go anywhere this season. So all of which is to say I'm not surprised that this is where we've ended up. I don't like it. It's it's annoying. I am frustrated. Like it just as as with so many things in baseball, it did not have to be this way. But once that path is chosen, well, I mean, how surprised are you really going to be when it ends up being full of snakes and rocks and all kinds of crap? That's true. That's true. Um, Would you like for me to to give you today in baseball history august 25th sure go for it this is a thing i want to do this every week because i, I love okay. nationalpastime.com which does this for for every game um who would you guess in 2006 john taylor okay. became the fastest of the 40 players in major league history to have stolen 200 bases and hit 200 career home runs on he broke this record on this day in 2006. Who do you think that is? A-Rod? No. Good guess. Oh, He did play for the Yankees, I'll tell you that. Not at this time, though, I don't think. Ichiro. No, that's a terrible guess. Has he even hit 200 he... career home runs? I was going to say, I don't even think he got to 200 in the, in, in, in MLB. Mm-hmm. Uh... I'm going to try one more guess. Mm-hmm. It's not Derek Jeter. No. Um, that wasn't my guess. I just <laughs> played for the Yankees later. Well, clearly it must be Lance Bergman. No. Very, very good guess. Alfonso Soriano. Of course. We all forget Alf- Alfonso Soriano, one of the more slept-on players of his time. Mm-hmm. In large part, I think, because he had the misfortune of becoming a star right when Sabermetrics was kind of was was really entering the mainstream of baseball discussion 
And so I think there were a lot of people who looked at, you know, yeah, he's got the power and the speed, but he doesn't know how to get on base and he has no patience. And it was probably too simplified that degree because the other side of it was, yeah, but he, he's a 40-40 player. Who the hell cares how much you get on base when you can do that? Um, I think also the contract he got from the Cubs probably, I don't want to say it soured him in people's eyes. I do think it raised expectations to an unfair point for him um, because, I mean, it's not his fault that the Cubs were dumb enough to give him all that money based on like two good seasons. I do remember that that happened when I was in college and I had a friend who was a Cubs fan at the time and I remember when my other friend and I who were into baseball told him about it and he literally started crying a little bit. So, mm. yeah, that that should give you a sense of how that Alfonso Soriano contract played out. But no, I, I loved Fonzie back in the day. Just an He's one of my favorite players. Athlete. I, I'm not joking when I say like he was one of my favorite players. I like the skinny home rankings. Yeah, like he, he was he was cool as always. One of those super mm. fast switch athletes. The thing that'll always stand out to me about Alfonso Soriano, aside from the year I watched him basically be the entirety of the Washington Nationals, mm-hmm. which was really cool. He was also the um, Nationals on that team when he broke the record. Was. By the way, yes, he was. Um, I that's that's I, that's why I do. I feel bad that I didn't even remember that. I just I couldn't remember exactly what year he was on the Nationals, but uh, I do remember though with Fonzie that the one that'll always stand out to me is the home run off Randy Johnson in was it no sorry Kurt Schilling in the 2001 World Series in Game 7 in the 8th inning it was super late whatever it was I think it was the 8th inning the go ahead home run a slider that was at his shoelaces from Kurt Schilling and he manages to go down and launch it like it just stupid stupid athleticism in his prime one of those guys you really wish you know you, you could have found a way to extend it almost and, and give him more time but really a very very special player that I think a lot of people have kind of forgotten about because he he, he did feel a little bit like a comet and then he just, especially those years in the Cubs, he, he really just kind of disappeared into into the ether, a la Jason Hayward. I think he was a little bit Cubs? more memorable than Hayward and the Cubs. Because I also just remember him. And breaking outfielders. <laughs> it was like him, Carlos Lee, or Derek Lee. It was Kerry Woods yeah, still. It was the late, it was the late 2000s yeah. uh, Cubs. Carlos Zambrano. It was the last days of the Jim Hendry Cubs before mm-hmm. uh, Tribune. The Tribune sold the team to the Rickets, and Theo Epstein became the president of baseball ops. So, because yeah, right around I think the first Epstein season was 2013, 2014. Maybe maybe that's too late. But yeah, I remember by then they were they were pretty much done. All the starts were pretty much done, and I think by that point Wood had left or was pretty much gone. But yeah, I I, I do remember those teams. I think was Aramis Ramirez still around yes. then? Okay. Yeah, yeah those were. Those are perfectly fine Cubs teams. The only one I remember that really stands out is the 07 team that lost to the Rockies in the playoffs. That Rockies team that won like every playoff game until they just got destroyed in the World Series by Boston. Uh, I do remember that Cubs team was pretty good, and I think they were under Lou Pinella or some scrap, some some crotchety old school manager was running them at the time. But yeah, wow, that's a nice little trip down memory lane there. Remembering remembering some Cubs. Do you want to remember some 1922 stuff real quick? I was not alive then, so I couldn't remember <laughs> it, but hit me. After leading 25-6, to six, thanks to scoring 10 second-inning runs and adding another 14 in the fourth, the Cubs need to hold on. Again, 25-6. to six. Mm-hmm. They need to hold on to defeat Philadelphia 26-23. to 23. The Slugfest, wow. which sets the Major League mark for most tallies scored in one game and the most hits with a combined total. John, are you sitting down? 
Uh, no, but go for it anyway. Total of 51 hits in this game. Wow. The game Was ends this... with the Phillies leaving the bases loaded in the ninth when they were down three runs. Was this at Wrigley or was this at um, mm. was this the Baker Bowl at that point in time in Philadelphia? I'm not sure, but I'm going to say because Philadelphia batted last, it, it was in Philly. Okay, so it was either it was it must be the Baker Bowl then, and that mm-hmm. would make sense because if I remember my baseball history at all correctly, the Baker Bowl was one of the most extreme offensive parks in the game. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm double checking that now because I really I really do want to make sure I get this right. I don't want to just be throwing nonsense out there. Oh, sorry, and it was Scheib Park. I got Scheib Park. But also, uh, what I, I believe, a very offense-friendly stadium uh, way back. Well, the dimensions... <laughs> I love the dimensions of old ballparks. <laughs> Scheib, Field, or Scheib Park, when it opened, was 360 to left. Or, sorry, 378, 360 to left, and eventually 378. 340 to right. 515 to the center field corner. That's insane. 515 feet. <laughs> That's incredible. Why would you build a park like that? <laughs> Why would you build a park that is just literally a park? <laughs> There's no walls, apparently. It just goes on forever. But that's good, though. I, I like some I like some old-timey baseball trivia. Um, that does feel very 20s, too, as two teams just scoring a billion runs. Because I assume that in 22, both the Cubs and, and, and the Athletics were pretty damn bad. Yeah. It's a safe guess with the Cubs, but... <laughs> For sure. Um anyway. Do you read the New York Times a bit at all? Um, not unless it's someone famous slash someone has recommended it now. Mm. I, I read them all the time. Bob Silverman and Andrew think it's hilarious that I'm an, I'm just an old man that I just... I that, that is a very old man thing to do is read the New York Times obituaries. Mostly because the way I gather is that the elderly read the obituaries in part because it's people they remember, but also mm-hmm. because, hey, that I knew that person. Uh, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure that's not the case for you unless you're hanging out in senior <laughs> citizens' homes. No, I just think it's interesting. I like reading how people, like, because I'm usually the, I don't read, like, the ADCs a bit, so, like, I usually go through that. I'm not even sure if they do that anymore. Um, But, like, I don't know. Just there's something about going through those where I I like a a super, uh, super simplified biography of people that I did not know that still did enough to make it into there. Because usually they're really interesting people and their stories are pretty interesting. But there was a guy named Mr. Skoto who was like a union guy. He went to prison for racketeering. They were never really sure if he was a mafia boss, but he had this quote in there. And this is how we lead. There's a reason I'm bringing all this up, John. I was going to say, the person listening to this must be so confused right now. <laughs> to be like, what? Did, did someone I know die? <laughs> no, I mean, probably. But probably. yeah, I mean, chances are people die all the time. The odds, the odds, are, the odds are pretty good, yeah. Um. <laughs> really happy we like to keep things uplifting on this on this program john um but he has this quote and this is how i want to tie this into major league baseball because the major league baseball proposal just came out over the last week the new cba and what they want to do with the the floor and we're we're just going to a really uncertain time um this Mm -hmm. winter with major league baseball his quote because this man uh was a union chief and all that kind of stuff um he said quote who and this is in 1965 who knows what you can achieve when there are reasonable men on both sides of the table john it perked my interest i like that quote i was like yeah that would that's a glass half full person of like what can uh, yeah because it's like yeah that would be nice wouldn't it like if reasonable people on both sides of collective bargaining 
were just readily available and that's just how life worked and that's how baseball will work in a few months um i don't think that's what's going to happen here and based on what we've seen thus far i don't think there's going to be a lot of reasonable people um and i'm very concerned that there's going to be a work stoppage and we're gonna miss games next year i would bet on i mean based on i have no insider knowledge i have not talked to anyone i don't know anything beyond whatever but beyond what everyone else is reading my feel has generally been that there is almost certainly going to be a work stoppage. I think the climate between owners and play, between both, not just between owners and players, because that's always been a bad, a, a bad relationship. But specifically now, the relationship between players and specifically the union with the league and specifically Rob Manfred. I think those those relations are also at a really low point, and I think that makes it all the much harder because. I think it's one thing if you have a negotiation with two people on one side or with the owners on one side, the union on the other, and Rob Manfred in the middle or the commissioner generally mediating to try to find a good common ground uh, solution for everybody. The problem is, and I think this is true of, of this is true of Bud Selig as well, but especially Manfred, I don't think he's there to be a mediator. I think he's there to fight for the owner side of things. And that's really what worries me because, I mean, just based on the first proposal they put out, Granted, first proposal never going to be never going to be the finishing position. Almost certainly on the owner's part, not a serious offer. Just testing the waters to see what it is. But at the same time, that offer, as it was, uh, in exchange for a salary or uh, excuse me, to have a salary floor going along with CBT thresholds. I mean, that's just not going to happen. At, at this point, like I can't see the players agreeing to something within reason that includes. Uh, that that really just strengthens the luxury tax, uh, especially because their MLB's plan is to lower the luxury tax, which thus makes more teams afraid of it, which thus reduces spending. And I understand the mindset of well, if you have a higher if you have a higher salary floor, actually, I don't really particularly understand that mindset. A salary floor makes sense for baseball at a certain point. The Orioles are paying something like fifty million dollars in payroll this year. That's not just nothing, but probably in line with what they were paying 20 years ago in salary, inflation notwithstanding. So, but I mean, I guess even beyond whether or not this proposal was serious and whether or not the owners actually expected uh, the players to do anything, and I'm just going to quote directly just so we have all the relevant details from the athletic piece from Evan Drellick and Ken Rosenthal that lays it out. Uh, MLB's proposal included a four-tier luxury tax system, adding a new tier to the bottom of the current tier, three-tier structure, the new initial tier would be $180 million and tax rates would begin at 25%. The current system has the initial tier at $210 million with tax rates starting at 20%. The proposing salary floor would be set at $100 million. So, on the one hand, I, like the, I think the salary floor is a thing that we probably are going to get at some point. I think that's a very huge issue for the union. I know Tony Clark has talked a lot of times about how teams are not spending enough money on players. And I think for the union, too, it's... It's obviously designed for them, uh, having seen what how the market has turned out for especially mid-tier free agents and uh, veteran free agents. Those guys are not being not just you know being signed to smaller contracts, but some of them are just get, are just not getting signed at all. And I think that's their way around. That is, well, if a team has to spend money, then they're at least going to give it to say, or theoretically at least they're going to give it to the veteran free agent available in the market instead of literally no one. Granted, I think teams will probably just start getting more, uh, will just start trying to get more and more aggressive with pre-arbitration extensions, which I imagine the union is not entirely against those because they are guaranteed money, even if the earning potential is smaller. 
I I would be curious to see how the league responds financially to a salary floor, but a luxury tax that not only lowers the threshold but also imposes higher tax penalties, no way in hell the union's going to accept that. And if that's something that the owners genuinely want, then I that's already a really bad sign. I don't think they understand, or maybe they do and they just don't care, and I'm not sure which is worse, that the players at this point are sick and tired of the austerity games that, that owners have been playing for the last, well, really forever, but especially over the last five or so years. And I know last offseason we, we saw a little bit more money. There have been some blips, obviously, guys like Garrett Cole and Anthony Rendon and the big long-term extensions for guys like Trout and Tatis. But it, it's just hard to imagine ML, the Players Union agreeing to any kind of CBA that includes or increases or introduces more spending restrictions when their whole mindset with this CBA, I believe, is teams need to spend more and we need to find ways to get more money into the hands of the players, which, of course, is is their that should be their goal in every negotiation. But what I guess that's a frightening thing. Like you said, they're two reasonable people. I don't think the owners are reasonable about this. I don't think they're willing to increase the slice of the pie. In fact, I would imagine that most of them probably feel like the players already get too much as is. And especially coming off as they're going to cry over and over again over the next, uh, both the rest of the season and through the offseason and the negotiations, considering that uh, they, you know, they can, and of course, with the books closed, we're never going to know for sure, that they took huge financial losses both during the pandemic and probably took losses in 2021 as well with the with the games that they weren't able to sell tickets for or due to reduced attendance. And then again, I assume they're going to be claiming some level of poverty because of the ongoing pandemic that has lowered attendance and also probably has extra slash other economic effects that we can't see because, again, we're not privy to team or league finances. And that's kind of the problem, too, is that like two reasonable people can agree on something, but it also helps, I think, to have the transparency in these agreements for, for each side to be able to say, here's where we're coming from so that you know we're negotiating in good faith. And I think that more than anything is what is what's going to make this a real big problem. The owners do not negotiate in good faith. Weighed worse by the fact that the league and Rob Manfred does not negotiate or act in good faith. I mean, you saw that just last week when they pulled their surprise move to switch uh, from having car, uh, baseball cards made by Fanatics instead of Tops, which bizarre enough to think about a world where tops does not make baseball cards that just that's as someone who collected cards when i was a kid and who still has you know does i don't collect them now but i still i obviously i I like them for what they are it's really really weird to think about that i know that there are a lot of collectors who have and other fans who've run into really serious quality control problems with fanatics and who are worried about what the what the end result is going to be but to me what stood out was the story that came out later about the executives of Topps, uh, I forget, I think it was the New York Times, but I can't remember exactly who, saying Major League Baseball never even made us an offer. They simply just took their business to fanatics without negotiating with us. And that really worries me. Because number one, that is just really bad business. That's just, that, that's like, I don't understand who taught Rob Manfred how to do money and business, but that's not how you do money and business. That's just stupid on 18 different levels. Two, it reminds us that Manfred and Major League Baseball currently, for as much as they talk about sometimes the the sanctity of the game and the history of the game and preserving the tradition, tradition will not get in the way of an extra dollar. Topps has been Major League Baseball's card manufacturer for probably forever, and they are simply taking it away in exchange for whatever increased amount of revenue that, that Fanatics is going to be able to provide for them because of whatever agreement they've made. And I think it just shows, too, that Manfred is not really – he's not patient. 
He doesn't really seem to be someone who weighs all his options very carefully. He just seems impulsive and kind of rash in these decisions, and which is not to say that MLB just chose Fanatics without thinking about it. Clearly, they've, they've been working on this for a bit. But it's just bizarre to me that they would do this in a way where they wouldn't talk to tops and just throw it out there the way they did. And it just makes me worry that negotiation is just not a word in Rob Manfred's vocabulary, that there is the price he wants. And if you don't meet that price, well, then that's that. And that's just not how that's not how to make a CBA happen. You know, the, the owners and the league cannot come to the table with ironclad proposals and say, meet this or it won't happen. Because they will, number one, they will find the union and go, okay, then no season. And number two, it's just going to guarantee further rancor and further unhappiness and further bitterness. I don't know. I, 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 I This is where especially having the commissioner be someone who was intimately involved in these labor negotiations before as Bud Selig's personal attack dog really, really is not great. Uh, granted, it's definitely what the owners want. They want a commissioner who is going to lay down the hammer on organized labor because they don't want to pay. But yeah, it. I, I really am extremely pessimistic about, about baseball being played at least on time next year, if not really at all. And I think one thing that especially stands out to me as I kind of think about that is uh, we had Kevin Goldstein for Fangraphs write a, he wrote a piece on Monday just kind of looking over himself on the weekend that touched on that story from Ken and Evan about the CBA negotiations. Uh, and at the, he concluded his little blurb by saying, this is the first paragraph I've written in 2021 about the labor situation, and this week's first in-person discussion between the two sides leaves me with no reason to believe that I won't be writing many more in the coming months. So, yeah, I, I am not optimistic. It doesn't sound like you are either. And honestly, I don't think there is a reason to be optimistic, given what we've, given what we've seen so far, what we know about the league, and this first foray by the owners that is, again, first proposal, but obviously not remotely a, a serious starting point in happier news john taylor the baltimore orioles yeah how is this happier news <laughs> they're number one and it'll be.com's pipeline updated rankings today ah, you can go check it out ah, the farm system oh Boy, yes if that, doesn't, if that doesn't just say the oh, 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 every word that needs to be said about not just the orioles but the, but also the current state of baseball that as the Orioles are have lost 19 straight games and are on the verge of setting a new major league record for consecutive losses, their farm system is now number one in the sport. Congrats, guys. That's what it was all about. We Who did the it. Who hell cares how many games in a row you lose, how incompetent you look in the process, how embarrassing your franchise is just on a national level. Mm. Hey, three years from now, some dude might come up and give you three war a season for like four, for like three and a half years. That's what it's all about, baby. Hey, it's the little things. It's depressing. It's the little I mean, that's all, that's all it is for the Orioles, right? That's all they have. That farm system is quite literally all they have. You know, it could be worse. You could just be like the Phillies where they're like still reshuffling the front office after. But at least the Phillies have Bryce Harper and JT Realmuto and, and, and mm. Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler. And like, yeah, they're not good because they're the Phillies. And I think that just... But at the same time, they at least have a product... Of mostly viable, occasionally major league product. You had to pick the Phillies, didn't you? Um, <laughs> you can't handle it. Like you, you, you cannot handle talking about the Phillies and, and just figuring out what they are. The Phillies are just like this long term science experiment Phillies, for you. Yeah, the Phillies are just a, they're they're a they're they're a constant state of flux, is what the mm-hmm. Phillies are. 
But regardless, like if it's the Phillies or it's anybody or if it's anybody else, I mean, I, I I understand that there are teams that just kind of float about with with no real direction. The Rockies, mostly the Rockies, again the Rockies, but. I think there are more teams floating than you're giving them credit for. Like the Rangers just moved on from their assistant GM. Uh, they've just been bad and just could, are going to continue to be bad. I think the Angels are floating. I think um, the Nationals might be floating pretty soon because they have a lot of expensive pieces and this farm system is atrocious. Uh, the Mariners have been in past years, but I don't think they're they qualify as floating anymore. The Indians well, think, are absolutely floating. The but I think teams teams like a team like Cleveland is floating not because their front office doesn't know what it's doing or because they've chosen a it's just because they won't spend. Uh, a team like Texas is is floating because they botched their first rebuild attempt and now have to make a second one. A team like uh. Who are the other teams you mentioned? I've already I've already forgotten in this. I've already forgotten too. Depressing. Yeah. yeah. But regardless, like I think what what kind of separates the Orioles is like I said, what is there at the major league level that they can be happy about right now, or that they can feel good about going forward? Who the Orioles? Mullins? Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's Mullins. It's Mancini. Who wants to and, be there long term? And it's maybe Means. John. It's John Means. If he, I know he's had a bad year, but he's still got good results in the past. Austin Hayes a little bit. For, but that's the thing, like once you get past the three M's Mullins, Mancini and means, then you're starting to talk about guys where there are a lot of conditionals involved. Chris Austin Davis's Hayes, retirement. But, and that, that's the other thing. Now you're talking about stuff like Chris Davis retirement. I mean, just to use Austin Hayes as an example, a guy, who, uh, you know, one of their better prospects to come out of that, uh, farm system, although at, at a time when it was weaker, perfectly fine defender, good speed, a little bit of power, but just nowhere near a finished player and giving off vibes that you're talking more about either like a, maybe more like a, a, a like a Randall Grichuk type of player, but without as much power. We should mention Mountcastle too. Defensively. Now, I mean, Mountcastle is a possibility as well, but, but a guy like Mountcastle feels more like a potential like Heimer Candelario clone um, than he does any kind of franchise cornerstone. And I think that's the other thing. When you look at the guys that they've kind of developed into major league starters, well, we won't even call it stars. We'll just say starters. Average, they just developed into regular MLB players. Mullins right now, I think, is the only guy you look at and go, he has he has four plus war per season potential because of the combination of speed and power and defense that he offers. And and also he's just he's just he's just a very good hitter now that he's given up switch hitting, which is just a fun story. But a guy like Mancini at this point, he's a perfectly fine middle of the order bat, but he's also in his late twenties and he's not gonna be around for really that much longer in the future. Same I think he will. Is, no, I think he's going to lock in. I think but he's, he's But he's stay. also he's also limited in what he offers because he is a bat first player entirely. He offers mm. zero defensive value, if not negative. He's not a good base runner. You know, it, he's really just a bat and a corner bat, which is something most teams and most organizations can find without really too much effort or without too much money. But also and a means, good dude and he gets people in seats and he keeps people yeah, happy and, and he's someone yes, that you is, want. Yeah. There's a value to a guy like Mullins and Mancini and and Mountcastle and Means. How did they get all these M names? <laughs> Um, to be the guys that fans now can be like, oh, these are the guys I care about. But when that list stops at like three, that's really not a good sign. And for as much as we talk about how the Orioles farm system has really turned it around, and yes, they have. They have some great prospects in that system. What major league development success stories do the current Orioles have to point to beyond Mullins, which is seems less about development and more about he simply stopped doing a thing he was bad at? Hmm. Means you can get you. I'll give them means. 
I will give them to a certain degree the fact that Mancini is still productive. I will give them Mount Castle at least being league average right now, which is pretty maybe useful. I'm not sure. He's not much of a defender either, so I'm not really... Again, like we're, we're talking about a team that otherwise has not really moved anything up. And yeah, there's going to be some additional help coming. They'll have Adley Rutschman. They'll have, if they obviously if they all stay healthy, Grayson Rodriguez. They'll have D.L. Hall. They'll have Jesson Kierstad. They'll have the number one pick in next year's draft to go with the guy they took uh, this summer with the number... Actually, they didn't even have a, a top five pick, I don't think, this year. I think there were six or seven. Regardless, they'll have another good draft pick, but those guys are going to take time, and there's no guarantees. It, there's no guarantees that they even make it, much less produce. The Orioles have put every last dollar franchise-wise, so to speak, on their farm system. They have done nothing, nothing else in the last four years except for invest in their farm system and, I assume, any international signings. If that farm system, if that farm system does not produce the way it's supposed to, this franchise is screwed beyond belief because they have no, they have no major league caliber core right now beyond Mullins, Means, and Mancini. Who's their Miguel Tejada of this generation? No one. That's the thing. And not only, not only is all at bank, not as he's all banking on the farm system right now. How many fans are you losing by doing this? Mm. How many kids in Baltimore? are just going to stop paying attention to the Orioles because every time they watch them, they're losing 14-2 to two with a bunch of AAA players nobody's ever heard of who are never going to be anything. Yeah. I understand why Baltimore did what it did. I get it. Where that roster was uh, when they traded Manny Machado and when they did their little uh, summer fire sale that year, that was not a competitive roster. There was no amount of work they could do in free agency or trades to make it better. Or not no amount, but it would have taken a it would have been impossible, I think, to make them significantly better just through free agency and trades. They had to do something, and obviously for an ownership group that – and obviously tanking is kind of the most appealing, I think, for everybody because it means you basically have to, you basically stop trying at the major league level and you get to save a lot of money. But in the process of doing so, they have created a team that is unbelievably awful, that has <laughs> – you, if any, recognize not, not even stars, much less recognizable names and faces that is embarrassing every single day of the week. All for like six prospects. And again, this isn't this isn't the NBA where you get if you draft the, like the if you have a good draft, all of a sudden you're a real contender now or where all it takes is three players to form a super team. Adley Rutschman plus D.L. Hall plus Grayson Rodriguez plus Heston Kierstad plus Cedric Mullins plus on and on and on is not enough on its own. And I know that you could have said the same thing about the Cubs. It's like, oh, well, you know, well, when they get like, how are, how are Chris Bryant and Javi Baez and Wilson Contreras and all those guys going to be enough to get the Cubs over? Well, the Cubs started spending when they had to. The Cubs also had a lot of good luck. They were really good at player development. And they were doing this at a time when no one else was trying to do it, so they got to do stuff like trade Aroldis Chapman for, or trade Glaber Tor. Or, no, sorry, they got that the wrong way around. But you know what I'm trying to say. They got to, they got to take advantage of the fact that teams were more willing to surrender prospects than they are now. Mm-hmm. And I know we saw we saw a slight change in that over the deadline, and I'm not really sure what to attribute that to, other than I think that there are teams with some prospects who, because of the fact that they basically didn't play for the last year probably just fell out of their team's plans because they either yeah. just got too old or, or whatever it was. I think they were just more willing to move guys at that point. But ultimately, assuming that the that the general financial like structure of baseball does not change and that a new CBA does not increase the amount of money going to younger players or whatnot, 
what are the Orioles going to do? They just have to sit there and wait and hope that these guys work. Especially, and, and even, even knowing all that, if you're an Orioles fan, you're excited for Adley Rutschman to show up. But when Adley Rutschman does get called up, what's he going to do? He cannot turn the Orioles around by himself. Uh, no yes, can. he can. I don't know if you recall John Taylor, but Matt Wieters single-handedly oh flipped Baltimore. But, but also, like, Baltimore how... makes you appreciate Tampa Bay a lot more. <laughs> like when you're just when you feel just like just the pit of despair and just like okay, what are the options for Baltimore? You're like, well, I mean, it's not like the other AL. There's not another AL East team that struggles financially that is beating the crap out of the behemoths in the AL East and have been a thorn in their side year after year. Um, it can be done, and the Tampa Bay Rays do it year after year, but I don't know if there's space for, for two Tampas in a division with... It's, But it's just, mm. I think the thing to me, it is so tough to do what Tampa does on the margins that they mm-hmm. do. I mean, Look that's what Baltimore's I mean, trying to do right now. It is, but I think it, I think the issue I have with that is, and I'm not saying that it's it's a bad strategy. I think my issue, I just think my issue with that strategy is, you have no room for error if that's the mm-hmm. way you go, because the great, the great problem solver when it comes to Major League Baseball and to making a bad team better is money, because mm-hmm. with money you can simply pay better players to come to your team and make it better. Money gives you all kinds of room to make mistakes. If you're willing to spend money, yeah, there are times you're going to spend money and it's going to be a mistake. Guys, or not a mistake, but a guy's not going to, or a guy's going to have a, a bad year, or a contract's not going to work, or, or a guy blows out his elbow, or whatever it is. Those are the risks you take when you make these decisions. But at the same time, if you have a, a payroll that is sizable enough, you can absorb those mistakes and just pay for better players. If you're a team like the Rays, and just look look at what the Rays have had to do just to be good this year. They have churned through like a hundred pitchers. They've used more relievers, I think, than any team in baseball, and if, and if that's the case, probably than any team in baseball history. And a lot of those guys are just blowing out or ending up on the injured list because the Rays are running through them like like what's a thing you run through quickly? I guess toilet paper in April twenty twenty. Mm. Ah, topical. There you go. But and I think that it is. I run so through Nutella difficult. pretty quickly, John. I'm a big Nutella guy. I run through that How pretty. Did, how do you not have like type two diabetes? <laughs> well, I mean, I exercise every day, and I'm like, at the oh, no, this. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how I stay oh, And also, rather skinny, tall and skinny. I don't think type two diabetes is yeah. uh, is on my radar. Knock on wood. So you're just you're just built like a Taiwanese skyscraper. <laughs> um, I'm making that the lead of this. I'm built like a Taiwanese skyscraper, John. I don't know if that's a burn or a compliment, but I, I appreciate it. Can it. Be both. It can be both. Also, but, what does that mean? Are they like notoriously yeah, high? Yeah. Yeah, because there's Taiwan is a small has small land mass, so the skyscrapers have to be tall. Oh, yeah, I didn't it's know same, this. Like similar to like Japan. I mean, that's why that's why countries like Japan and Taiwan have such so many skyscrapers because there's just not a whole lot of land mass. I didn't know this. Land. Interesting. They're, yeah. Regardless, um, John Taylor, the geography guy. I like it. Every now and then, but Mr. Atlas Obscura I, I think, himself. <laughs> Mr. Rand McNally over here. <laughs> um. I, I mean, I think that's just my thing with Tampa Bay. Stra- I mean, I loathe Tampa Bay's strategy on a purely aesthetic and pure and like purest purest level. I hate what they have done to baseball. I hate them so much, and so I need to admit that right away. Like, just need to admit that bias off the top of my head, but or off the top. But at the same time, I, I know it's a strategy that's worked for them, but it's a very hard strategy to run efficiently, competently, and to and successfully. It's so hard. You need to be 
aces at player development. You need to be aces at acquisition. You need to be so good at all of these things. And again, if if teams with low payrolls have so much less room to work if things go wrong, so much less room, because they're not going to go out and sign better players. They just have to sit with it. If you're going to live through the live by the farm system, you die by the farm system. And if your prospects go bust, now what are you going to do? Because now the cycle's restarted all over again. Except you're in an even worse position now. Because at least before you had major league regulars you could trade for prospects. Now what do you have? If this doesn't work for the Orioles, what on earth are they going to do? I don't know. They have put all their eggs in this basket. And the result is a 19-game losing streak, four years of utter embarrassing nonsense, and the promise that maybe... Maybe by this time in 2024 or 2025, and that's the other dirty little secret of this, that farm system of theirs is very good, but there is it is there is not a whole lot of guys ready to take that major league leap just yet. Uh, and even if there are, the rest of that roster has to be built out, and that's not something that's going to take that's going to happen quickly either. So we're talking like maybe two or three years from now, you're going to see the contending Orioles team that everyone's envisioning, led by Rutschman and Great and Rodriguez and Hall and Kierstead and all those other guys. But that's if everything goes right. Because that's what the Orioles have done. They need everything to go right for this to be the nadir of the franchise and not its new continued existence. I guess, I mean, that's the thing. You burn a house down, you better have a really good plan to build it up. Otherwise, you're, well, now you just have an empty lot full of burnt pieces of wood. That metaphor wasn't great, but I think it's <laughs> um, In happier news, John, how excited are you Is to have Alex Bregman back in, back in Houston? I mean, I don't personally. Bregman, it feels weird to say this because, like, I, I want to try to be as relatively, not neutral, but, like, reasonable about baseball as I can be and not be, you know, taking personal shots at folks. Bregman, though, boy. Mm. You want to talk about, you? I, I think the two guys who came out, there are three people I think who came out of that Astros uh, trash Four guys, sorry, I'm going to keep expanding, who came out of that trash can scandal the worst, uh, not counting the the managers, coaches, and, and Jeff Luno. Uh, Carlos Correa, Jose Altuve, Justin Verlander, and Alex Bregman. I know Verlander wasn't involved because he was a pitcher, but I thought, in particular, the, and it, this isn't so much even for what they did because we don't know exactly what they did, but I think those four in particular were so vocal about not just basically, well, what are you going to do? We and not even some, they didn't even they wouldn't even admit it. They would not even admit it. They were the most vocal deniers of this entire thing, and the most vocal too. And and, and Josh Reddick is there too, but I, nobody cares about Josh Reddick anymore. About basically taking the wrestling heel aspect of it, which I know you're a, 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 a vibe you're you're intimately familiar with, mm. one that I'm only superficially so. And I understand that why the Astros did that, and Bregman in particular did a lot of chirping after the fact. But I think the thing that bothered me most about Bregman is he has established for himself a reputation of being a crap, of being a shit talker uh, when it comes to playing games. And I got I got no problem with that. Guy wants to talk crap, fine. As long as you back it up, you're good by me. Bregman has backed it up in his career. But once the Astros thing broke and he just went basically dead silent and was like, I don't want to really want to talk about it. Come on, dude. You cannot be the chief crap talker for that team and then go dead silent when this happens. That is such a... What is the best way to put this? That is just... It just it speaks volumes as to where the Astros operate from and what their mentality and mindset is. 
And it's always, and maybe that's unfair, but I've just always had kind of a, or I've had a, I've never felt particularly great about Bregman since then. Hmm. If you're going to chirp and, and, and clap back at folks and, and, and be Mr. You know, the, the persona he puts on of being like, uh, I'm, you know, I'm going to give it to you straight. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a straight talker. I'm going to, you know, if, if I hit, if I hit a home run off you, you're going to hear it. It's like, okay, fine. You just got caught in the biggest cheating scandal this sport has seen since the Black Sox. And your response is, we didn't do it. Nobody knows for sure. Come on, man. Own up that. Own up to that shit. Own up to it. At least admit that there's something that you guys got caught. You know, take your lumps. This this Astro scandal would have been so much different. I feel like if the team had put on any air of, of penitence, shame, or or even just a, even just guilt, any admission of guilt. Anything at all. Nothing. And Bregman was front and center for that as someone who, not as, I don't think, like, because there, there, there are two routes that I think the Astros took. One was Correa, who did the explicit heel work, of basically just being like, fine, talk shit to us, we'll talk shit right back to you, we don't care, because I think that's just how Correa is. And then there was the Verlander-Bregman-Altuve side of things, where they basically just no-commented their way through the entire thing. And I just think, personally, that's weak as hell. I, I think when something like that happens, you cannot just say no comment and duck questions. Your team got caught, you have to answer for it. And which I don't, I don't know, none of that has anything to do with Bregman on the field. He's a fantastic player on the field. I love watching him play. Just generally, he's a great hitter too, and obviously a huge boost for the Astros. Who uh, I'm just I'm just resigning myself now at this point to the Astros Yankees ALCS. It's just going to make me put my head through a window, but. Mm. Obviously, a big a big uh, addition for them, especially as the A's are kind of frittering away their postseason hopes as well, or at least making them making it way harder on themselves. But yeah, I, I I personally can't really get behind Bregman. I personally can't really get behind much of that Astros team at this point. The way they acted in the wake of that in the wake of that scandal was just really, really just kind of I don't want to say embarrassing. That's that's probably too strong, but. It said a lot about who the guys on that team are and how they operate, and it just left a really bad taste in my mouth. And Bregman, especially, was one of those. What about a November World Series? Is that going to leave a bad taste in your mouth? Because that's where we're headed this year. I don't. I mean, I don't care if the Astros win a World Series. No, 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 no. no. I'm saying a November World Series, just in general, that we're going to have the latest. This is going to be the latest World Series, I believe, ever. Yeah, and I guess there's, uh, but that's what MLB signed up for when they said that they wanted to start the season later. I mean, you you just can't get around that one. Where if you start the season later, you have a World Series in November. If you start the season earlier, you have Opening Day in like the third week of March when it's forty degrees across most of the country. Yeah, there's just not really a way around that for baseball. Um, it can go a lot of different ways. It could be in Los Angeles. Could be sure freezing I mean, in San Francisco. Yeah. It could be freezing in New York. I have no idea which way this is going to go. It's no, kind of exciting. And that's Chicago also, in November, eh. and that's also kind of unfortunate for Major League Baseball is that it does have a number of cold weather teams that are probably going to be involved in the. I mean, yeah, like you said, like we might get New York, we might get Chicago, we might get Boston, we might get well Boston. Uh, okay, 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 John, that's enough. You know, we might get <laughs> we might get Cincinnati. We might get. Although I don't actually know what Cincinnati's like in November. Come to think of it, Regardless, it's probably chilly. It's probably chilly. Regardless, uh, yeah. I mean, the only real solution... I think Cards-Yankees is what we should probably sign up for. I think we're looking towards Cards-Yankees just for John to to put his head through one of those new New York uh, Halloween shops. Oh, the Spirit Halloween? They're back, baby. I always think of BoJack Horseman now when I see those. 
Makes sense. But, what a great, great bit. Yeah, but I, I think the only way... I, I got no problem with the November World Series other than the potential weather concerns, which obviously we can't force... We can't really do anything about until we know who's going to be in the World Series. Actually, you know what they can do, John? Hear me out. Well, they could pick a neutral site. Well, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. They can influence games in the playoffs to make sure that the Atlanta Braves find their way to the World Series because the weather will be pretty solid in November in Atlanta in the South. So what they could do is ensure, I'm not, like, however they want to do it, just ensure that the Braves uh, make it to the World Series. Look, we already had MLB put the fix in for Atlanta with Ron Gant back in 91. We don't need to do this again. Okay, that that, that was a little hurtful. I think there is some Ron Gant stuff in my parents' basement, actually. Um, He's still a local, yeah. He's a, that's a name I've not heard. He had some guns. Ron Gant, very large arms. Big man. Uh, Still jacked. I've seen him, I saw him a a couple years ago. But I think if Major League Baseball doesn't want the World Series in November, they think the only realistic option beyond uh, starting the season earlier and just dealing with the postponements and weather issues that creates and or accepting a neutral site World Series, which I don't think Major League Baseball will ever do Mm. unless they have to like they did last year. Uh, the only real option is just to shorten the season and bring it back down to 154 games. That or you play, or that or you schedule double headers on weekends, so you can get through the week, so you can get through the season faster. That's really it. And I don't think between the two, I'm pretty sure I know which one would be more realistic, which is to say 154 games. I have a hard time seeing major league teams each each sacrificing four home games worth of, of money. I have a hard time seeing MLB players sacrifice eight game checks. Um, I have a hard time seeing the league deal like wanting to deal with the scheduling nightmare that that's going to create. That would probably have to involve some kind of divisional realignment. But, I mean, that's just the reality. Until the planet... Until until global warming does its thing and turns uh, and turns Earth into a permanent fireball and or an aquarium... That's that's I mean, that's just the reality of baseball being a, a six month long sport when summer is only four months max, really. So or when you only get warm weather guaranteed really five months out of the year in this country in certain parts. So, yeah, that's just the unfortunate reality. I, again, I, I got nothing against it in terms of just the aesthetics of it. I mean, uh, I can't was did we have, a, have we had a November World Series game between now and the Derek Jeter uh, between now and the 2001 World Series, hmm. I can't remember if we have. I don't know off the top of my head. I'm not sure. Yeah, but I, I know it's not something that happens often. So there's nothing. And then that's the thing. There's, Hold on, John. Me, can I can I stop you real quick? Yes. There is a blue jay and a cardinal that just landed on my bird feeder as well. Oh, okay. So Toronto St. Louis World Series. I'm no. not saying yes, but I'm not saying no. I think it's happening now. I, did they know that we were recording a Major League Baseball podcast? That's why they decided to hop on the bird feeder. Like, I kid you not, I'm looking at a Cardinal and a Blue Jay sitting on the bird feeder. I no, I believe you. It's wild. I believe you. And I think it's an omen. I, I think so, too. No Oriole, which is not good. No, I, I mean, well, I, I don't know if you'd get Orioles in Tennessee. Probably not. There's actually a lot of Blue Jays in Tennessee. It's kind of strange. Oh, interesting. 
big yeah, woodpeckers I, I saw i oh my goodness john this is and then we can actually finish your point and then we're going to end with a story time in tennessee uh, tennessee I was nature say like if, if it doesn't i mean if it is a november world series great but i think if that's a problem for mlb going forward then well they don't really have a whole lot of easy good options to change that so yeah so it goes um john i i was walking with uh with the pup um last week and walking around knoxville tennessee and yes. uh as one does and i've never experienced it like this before so a hawk flies by me like at shoulder level i'm almost six feet like shoulder level just zooms by me zooms by me completely yes. catches me off guard like out of my peripheral vision this this hawk zooms by pulls out another bird midair snaps its neck and just beats it into the ground yeah, yo, uh, raptors are some real nasty predators just in the way they just destroy the things in, in front of them. There was someone who was driving into the street where they were like, did you just see that? And I'm like, did I see a hawk just <laughs> commit a murder right in front of my face? Yes, I, I saw it. It was it was one of the more baffling things I've ever seen. That same hawk was in my backyard yesterday. So Perched. it was trying to kill you. I don't know if he's trying to kill me, but he knows that like because of the bird feeder and because we're a bird friendly house, there are a lot of birds popping around and the girlfriend made a point of like, are we just like using these birds as bait for this just vicious hawk that's now yes. familiar with the area? I don't know, but it was terrifying and also exhilarating to just see a, a hawk just fly by and zoom. In. It was one of those where, John, I am very happy that I'm not in the food chain. Are you happy you're not in the food chain? Like, we don't have to worry about this. I mean, I'm, I'm happy that we're at the top of the food chain. Yeah. Uh, that we have no natural predators and that we exist just to consume everything in front of us. But right. Yeah. Yeah. That works for me. I'm, I'm happy being where I am in the food chain for sure. Yeah. This this woodpecker had no idea what was coming to him. Like, he had no idea. He was just flying around. Just got... Oh, Woody. You got to you gotta keep, your, gotta keep your head on a swivel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised there's actually not an MLB team or not even MLB, like a pro sports team name the woodpeckers i'm surprised there's not one of those i thought there was a minor league team there, that. And there also, has really to be a, a minor that, league i mean do, do you think a team wants to be in a position where everyone can call them the peckers because <laughs> that's what i would do literally constantly is just call them the peckers <laughs> bunch of a bunch of peckers over here I mean, especially think about what they're think about what their diehard fans would be called peckerhead <laughs> gotta make it happen now uh, not to be confused with parrot heads which nobody likes um no nobody at all <laughs> i've bartended at jimmy buffett concert um another story for for another day uh john taylor we can follow you on twitter at j taylor we can read you and keep up with the great work at fangraphs.com a very good major league baseball website that people should subscribe to if they have not already where shirts are apparently available except for hosts of this very podcast John, what can we look forward to on Fangraphs.com this week? One, you know you're allowed to buy the shirts. Right? Mm-hmm. It's literally $20. I don't know if you saw the blue check mark next to okay. my name, John Taylor. Second, mm-hmm. if any part of our Orioles conversation interests you, Kevin Goldstein is actually doing a piece on what the path forward is for the Orioles for later this week. Uh, just talking about their losing streak, kind of what's on the roster now, what's in the farm system, kind of what the future of this team looks like, and whether or not things are better or worse than you imagine uh other than that we'll have our usual baseball coverage as the month begins to draw to a close and as we get to september 
So the other thing I really want to highlight is come September, we're obviously going to be focusing more and more on postseason stuff. We'll have our playoff odds that get updated every day. Jay Jaffe will be doing his annual team entropy look where he uh, looks at massive tie scenarios. And toward the end of September, we'll start putting out uh, playoff preview stuff and more playoff focus stuff. So definitely, if you want to get want to know everything there is to know ahead of the playoffs uh, for in the month of September, come on over to Fangraphs. Like Chase said, sign up for a membership, $20 for the light version, twenty or $50 a year for ad-free, which makes the site run that much faster. You'll be helping to support a great community and group of writers and baseball analytics site and collection of utter nerds. So come on over, check out Fangraphs.com. Uh, leave a nice comment yeah do that john taylor always a pleasure i will talk to you next week sounds good dude all right hello and welcome back to the wednesday evening edition of the chase house podcast as we roll along here on this wednesday august 25th show um i'm joined as I am every Wednesday evening by young Ken Palm himself. It's stats by Will. Will, how glad are you not to be dealing with the Tennessee Knoxville parking situation? <laughs> See, I was just down there for dinner with my uh, little brother, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, I I had kind of I, I wouldn't say forgotten, but I think it kind of hit me how many new things there are on campus mm-hmm. since I graduated in twenty eighteen. And consequently, how many, how much fewer parking spaces there are for uh, what I've been told is the largest freshman class in history. So, yeah, uh, I think it's the largest enrollment uh, as a whole in history. I do not envy anybody who commutes to that every day. It's because uh, when, when I commuted in 2013, 2014, you know, like you got there like 9 a.m., 10 a.m., whatever, you could generally find a spot. But now, I mean, now it seems a little tough. Oh, it's it's bad. I was driving around for a solid forty-five minutes, and uh, could not could not find a thing. It was it was bad. Oh, it was bad. But that's you're, tough. <laughs> yeah, it. I don't see how it's any better because they were talking about. I was reading a piece on the Daily Beacon actually about this, and they're like, "Yeah, we're landlocked, so there's nothing really we can do." And I was like, "Okay, cool. Well, then maybe don't admit this many people <laughs> if you don't have the space." Yeah. You can't have one without the I, other. I, I'm sure, like, because I know, like, COVID, they had, there were kids who, like, opted out or took a year, like, a gap year, and then would come this year or whatever. So I understand that side of it. But, like, my little brother said there are 6,900 freshmen, which is, <laughs> I believe, something like 2,000 more than my class of 10 years ago. I mean, that's an absurd jump in not that much amount of time. Yikes. Yeah, that's too much. It's too much, in my opinion, Will. Um, but yeah, that I'm sure everyone tuned in for this evening's episode of the podcast to to uh, listen to the the two of us, these two Knoxvillians, uh, banter about the Knoxville parking situation. That's what the the folks want here. But um, we're actually going to be talking about some college basketball, Will, as we will every single Wednesday on this very podcast. Um, we have to start in the state of Tennessee, just not Knoxville, not Vanderbilt. No, Memphis, who is just having themselves a week. Penny Hardaway, it feels like he hired Larry Brown ages ago now. Now he's brought in Rasheed Wallace to join this Memphis staff. 
Jalen Duran committed. And now, like I had my notes last night as I was putting together this this show and going through stuff. I was like, oh, well, Imani Bates could follow. And then you text me right before we get started here. And it's like, yeah, Imani Bates is going to follow Jalen Duran too to memphis um what do you make of all of this and all the momentum uh in memphis right now well first off i think rashid joining the memphis staff is objectively one of the coolest things to happen to college basketball in some time uh i, I feel like you know i know like he doesn't have much coaching experience and to be honest i don't feel like he really adds anything recruiting wise because they're already killing the recruiting game anyway I don't know what much more they can do beyond, I mean, as of now, they are the number one class in America after Imani Bates committed. Uh, you literally can't get better. So I, I don't know what more he, he adds, but it's just going to be cool to see him on the sideline uh, and kind of surreal in a way to see him and Larry Brown uh, sitting next to each other. Uh, I, I am really curious to see how they make, not just like the roster dynamic, but the coaching dynamic work because Rashid, obviously, a very strong personality, but Larry Brown, a deceptively strong personality, too. And I want to see how that works with, you know, we'll, we'll get into it with Memphis, but, you know, this is going to be year four of Penny's tenure there, and they have yet to have anything resembling a good offense. It's been wretched for large, large stretches of his tenure. So I want to see who gets the responsibilities of, you know, like, what, what is Larry Brown truly there for? Is he there to redesign the offense? Is just there to help with defensive coaching uh, do they change anything about their defense period which has been alongside Virginia the best in basketball of the last three seasons uh, it's it's such a fascinating team I think they if league pass doesn't really exist for college basketball anymore uh, but if it did Memphis would be the number one team in the college basketball league pass rankings yeah, I mean, who are you more excited about, Bates or Duran? Bates, I think, is just more of... He he will stretch the floor more offensively, which is what I'm looking for, because Duran is obviously a beast down low. He will be, I mean, a legit double-double threat many nights, uh, even against high-end competition. But the thing with Duran is, you know, as of yet, he has not really started to attempt anything thing beyond 12 to 14 feet with a lot of seriousness he they're you know hoping that he can extend out to three one day but it might not happen you know in his first year of college basketball and likely his only year Bates is interesting because if I understand it correctly based on his age he has to play two years of college basketball correct yes so he has to play two years he's already Duran doesn't right even though they both but they both reclassified to this class, right. and that was something they... Yeah, it's that's weird. Duran is older, I believe. Yeah. I, th- I think... I'll Duran to has to be older if that's how it's... Still it, that, that has to be the case if that's how it, it works here. Yeah, Bates is still 17. He does not turn 18 until late January. Mm. So, he yeah, he's quite young, uh, even for a, a college freshman. Uh, but I, I'm, I think Bates is going to be the guy that makes that offense click if it does end up clicking. Um, I, I want to see what they do at point because they already have Alex Lomax, who's a pretty good ball handler and a good passer. Uh, but he's had a lot of turnover issues. He's not a serious deep threat. Uh, Earl Timberlake, who came over from Miami, not a serious shooting threat. They're going to need, because they'll have Bates, Landers Nolley, 
DeAndre Williams and Lester Quinones, all varying levels of good from deep. But based on what I'm looking at right now, that is somewhere around an eight or nine man rotation. And Bates, I you would hope, ends up being the leading scorer in that rotation. But when Bates, Nolly, Williams, Quinones, if one of those four or even two of those four are on the bench, you're going to need somebody to come in and shoot. And I'm struggling to find right now who that guy would be. Uh, because, I mean, like we've mentioned, Duran doesn't really stretch the floor super well. He's kind of more of the Wiseman type where it's down low and, you know, pretty much everything is 10 feet or in. He's a lot, he's a lot of threat there. But um, I want to see what they can do to better their shooting because, I mean, like it or not, Memphis has recruited really well for a couple of seasons now. They've had an amazing defense for two straight years. Uh, number, I believe, number two in uh, Ken Palm's defensive rankings last year. Uh, if you took the roster and put it out there right now, they would be the best defensive team in America. It's just all on the offense to come together. And, you know, they don't have to be amazing. They just need to be, honestly, one of the 25 or 30 best. Hmm. Do you think that's going to be the case? Do you do you see this all gelling perfectly when you look at this group? Do you Are you pretty optimistic about what Memphis is going to be next year? Hmm. It's tough because I think they have a lot up in the air, um, which is it makes them such a fascinating team. I think one thing I do think is going to be quite obvious and will probably be a popular take is that they will be much, much better in March than they will be in November and December. It's going to take some time to figure out rotations, uh, both offensive and defensive, because if you... Uh, look at the likely eight-man rotation. Uh, Dran, you know, 6'10", Lomax, six feet flat. The other six players between 6'6 six, six and 6'8". Six, six, so they'll be very switchable and can run out with a bunch of different options uh, from two to four, and really from one to four if you include Bates. But, but uh, I want to see if they can turn what... I mean, right now, on paper, this is a team with, uh, we could probably say, a top-five talent. But we need to see top five talent become an actual top five team. And that offense is what holds it back from me from saying that right now. I think if I were to guess at this moment, their most likely outcome, it's somewhere where they're like the eighth to 12th best team in college basketball, which would still be the best Memphis team in many years. But, but is that enough to you know prove the hype? They're just so volatile. And it just feels like they're so top heavy and they're, if everything goes right, their ceiling's super high, but their floor is also super low. And I could just see everything imploding in Memphis at any time. It's just a, it's a weird, weird collection of pieces and assets, but I do think they're going to be must see. I'm excited to see how this works in Memphis. We played them, right? They're on the calendar. Yes. Um, uh, mid December in Nashville. Mm. Why is it in Nashville? Yeah, that was the, well, that was, the original plan was there's going to be road game memphis home game knoxville and then a neutral site deal in nashville where they would also have like belmont lipscomb tennessee state chattanooga like all of the mid-state schools come in and do like their own games leading into the main event uh i do not know off the top of my head if that is still happening but that was the plan when they originally signed the series hmm interesting um there was a really good piece in si this past week that I uh, I wanted to touch on, well, because I thought it was really illuminating and I thought it was very critical in examining what Wazoo can be. And we think about just different power six 
college basketball jobs. And we've talked about that when we in our conference previews and which jobs are more difficult than others. But uh, to the extent that Kyle Smith is having to start from the, the bottom up and winning at Wazoo, and if you're a college football fan, you know how hard it is to win and Pullman on the football field as well. Um, and what Mike Leach did there just being pretty baffling and um i don't know it's just uh we can we it's a very difficult thing and they've got a great ad in pat chun um but it, this was a really really interesting piece in how smith has gotten to where he is coming from the northeast and then being in san francisco and develop having this assistant on staff who just knows how to scout uh under under looked at pieces and just turning um, this into an equation uh, I think is super fascinating but also it's just like when you look at that I was like well it's not this is not something that big time coaches don't do either like Nick Saban has his his rules on what numbers and what speeds and what sizes he wants for certain positions so this is not abnormal for coaches to um, whether they're at a big school or a small school to have personal preferences on what they look for but to this extent and what Kyle is doing here and what he's done in the past, it's pretty, pretty remarkable. And reading about his time in San Francisco was pretty interesting and St. Mary's as well, um, years and years ago and how they had to just get that program off the ground and how quickly things turned. Um, what did you make of the piece? And, uh, what, what, like, what do you think about Wazoo coming out of it? Wonderful little piece. Uh, I was glad you sent that over cause I missed it when it first happened. Uh, the, the guy who wrote it, Kevin Sweeney, is fantastic. Uh, strongly recommend the follow on Twitter. But, uh, I mean, I don't feel like some of, some of that I don't think is really shocking, whether you followed Washington State or whether you followed Kyle Smith separately. Uh, I mean, I've personally never been to Pullman, but the idea of it being, you know, the least fun Power 6 school to be at as a basketball recruit kind of tracks. Uh, it feels like, like I grew up in a small town, Middle Tennessee, and Pullman kind of feels like if you dropped a college in my small town. Uh, you, you look at who has actually had success there as coaches, and it's like a who's who of guys before they were guys. You know, Tony Bennett, of course, is the one everybody remembers, but his dad, Dick Bennett, was there before him. Uh, you had Kelvin Sampson, pre-Indiana and pre-Oklahoma. And then uh, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, George Raveling, who is the Iowa slash USC coach who ended up coaching and Harold Minor for a couple of years. But, you know, the obvious issue, I think, with Washington State, whether it's uh, whether this is fan support, whether this is monetary support uh, within the budget or what it might be, none of those guys stayed long and all of them got out of town as soon as they possibly could. I mean, Tony Bennett only stayed three seasons. Uh, I don't know that that'll be Kyle Smith's fate as he's 52, but I would really like to see somebody latch on and, and build something real and stay there for you know it doesn't have to be for decades and decades but i want to see him stay for like six seven years and really build something cool a little bit like the tad boyle thing at colorado where they've built something that wasn't really there before but i don't think it's going to be easy to sustain success at washington state but i think they could become in a in like some fashion kind of what providence is where you're consistently like 40 it's the 60th in Ken Palm, and you're always kind of in contention on the bubble, whether you're on the right side or the bad side, depends on the year. But I think that's possible there. I mean, he just wrapped up uh, uh, by national ranking their best season in 10 years. They finished 78th in Ken Palm as their first top 
third ranking in eight seasons. I mean, that's clearly on the right path. Yeah, and I think um, we'll get into I mean and Noah Williams, but I, I he strikes me as someone who's going to be there for a while, and I think having a good idea in Shun will be critical there. And um, like you said, I, I think he raises the floor significantly. I don't know how high the ceiling is, but they get lucky in the transfer portal couple years like that it's possible you could you could see some some really good teams that can make a sweet 16 round of 32 run um final four elite eight is asking a lot but you know it is interesting that he's kind of doing what bama did a little bit um in basketball but i I do think it's interesting because his approach we're seeing across college basketball because i don't know i i sent you the hoop math leaderboards right uh no oh i thought it was on but the I've, list i've got always i don't know what i did with the hoop I visit hoop map. okay well either way i i don't know what I, I had it on this is what happens when you do this stuff at two o'clock in the morning well um <laughs> well the hoop math had this leaderboard and i was i was just fascinated because you and i have talked about this where um bama's doing something that all the small schools are doing like I, I forget i think it's like south dakota state 50 percent of their shots last year were threes but if you look at like the top 16 teams who had like represent the most amount of three-pointers attempted uh per season like it, it's all small schools like evansville things like that and then then bama pops up but yeah. by and large it's mostly small schools who are looking to gain whatever edge they can to keep them in games against the teams just with premier talent and that's what smith has done at saint mary's that's what he's done at uh, columbia that's what he's done at san francisco like he is just familiar with that and that's what he'll do at wazoo when he's facing the organs of the world um and the usc's like that that sh- just keeps the keeps the playing field as level as humanly possible but i do think it is interesting because like when people think about analytics and moneyball they think about you're not gonna leave this money and they think about finances but really or like just the advanced analytics of basketball is just okay three drive and kick all that kind of stuff like bam is all their shots in transition and at the rim and all that kind of stuff it's a very efficient style of play there's the other side of moneyball which is finding people that people don't look at so like i had forgotten about omar saman at saint mary's and like dudes like that that is part of it too is not just like the way you shoot on the floor it's not your shot selection it's also just what you look at in terms of talent acquisition you you look at it differently you look at players differently you don't waste your time on certain guys and you zero in on others and you you build this network and in their case an algorithm that looks at um guys that would fit your scheme and fit what you want to do that other people don't look at so like that's not really a numbers thing that's just more of like a this is finding the diamonds in the rough and that kind of aspect to it where it's like we can do this if we we really really know what we're doing on the recruiting trail even it with our limited finances which were pretty remarkable um when weaving through this because i think they have the smallest men's basketball budget in the power six and also are getting under 2500 fans per game which is which is crazy because there's a quote in the in the piece like there's nothing to do in pullman that's something to do. What are these folks doing when there's nothing to do? You should be going to college basketball games. They're, they're fun. Um, you should be going to these Cougs games. But um, what, do you, what do you make of all that? Well, I mean, like, I, I again, I've never been, but in uh, it, it gets quite cold in Washington mm-hmm. State in, like, December and January, right? Yes. The gyms are always 70 degrees. <laughs> Go to the gym. <laughs> it's, it's always warm in there. It's never cold in the gym. 
Yeah, I, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. But did you remember his numbers, like uh, Omar Saman? Like, I looked him up at St. Mary's because I don't remember this from the early 2000s and his stuff, and he it, it, it's wild to watch. But, yeah, he was he was a beast and super efficient and super uh, super talented for, for that St. Mary's team years and years ago. I loved him because that was, that was 2010, so that was uh, – the year I picked them to go to the Sweet 16, and it was one of like a couple key things I got right. So I won our family bracket pool. Uh, but I would also simultaneously gloss over the fact I had Butler losing in the first round that year. We don't have to discuss. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, that team was awesome. And to learn that he was behind the recruitment there honestly makes quite a bit of sense because the to, to win at a place like Washington, state you are going to have to get weird you're going to have to do things that other coaches in more comfortable situations don't have to you're going to have to use like mentioned in the piece the algorithms that god bless anybody who has to sift through high school stats because they are so so hard to come by in certain areas and certain uh programs uh god bless anybody who's building an algorithm on that because they got a ton of data to clean up and get right um, but you have to do that to win at a place like Washington State, even somewhat consistently. Uh, you have to either be way ahead of the curve, like Tony Bennett was defensively, or you've got to do something like this. You have to be different. And I appreciate anybody like Kyle Smith who was trying something as different as this. It, it is it is Moneyball-esque, but what it reminds me more of, honestly, I don't know if you read the Sam Miller and Ben Lindbergh, uh, The Only Rules It Has to Work book. Yes, I uh, about yeah. their running the independent league baseball mm-hmm. team. The the algorithm for high school recruiting reminds me so much of them running a similar algorithm to find overlooked college players because those were the ones who consistently uh, were sort of sort of had fallen out of the eyes of major league teams, uh, like older guys who had really good stats but maybe didn't play at a high profile school or. Uh, you know, tore it up at a Division three school, something like that. Like, I really appreciate that they are doing this and giving, I mean, not just, you know, lending to their own team success, but giving players, like mentioned in the piece, uh, a player whose only other offer was a Division two school, giving these players a chance to succeed on a high level and really providing them with a chance at, at you know, long-term careers. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, final notes. They do have Effie and Noah Williams, who were really good in the pick and roll last year. So I was watching some tape on that after this. I am pretty high on both of them. Like Washington State, you do you expect them to be pretty solid? Are you? Do you have any thoughts on Noah Williams and Mr. Effie from Nigeria? <laughs> I'm not going to sit here and say that I personally know a ton about either player because I, you're going to be shocked to hear this, but Washington State uh, basketball doesn't really make it on the TVs too mm. often in my cable package. But uh, statistically, the more you can keep the two of them on the court, the better the team is going to be. Uh, the Cougs out-rebounded opponents by 8.1 rebounds per 100 possessions when both were on the court, which was roughly for only 47% of the time somehow. Uh, they were 3.3 points better when both were on compared to when one or the other was off. Uh, it, that might not sound like much. I mean, three points over 100 possessions isn't a ton. But if you use the Hoop Explorer lineup tools, which we can link to, the Cougars played like a top 60 team in the nation when Williams and Effie were in together. 
Uh, I mean, considering they haven't finished top 60 in 10 years, that's quite important. Uh, if they rely more on the pick and roll, uh, which was one of their more efficient sets last year, uh, when it was those two players specifically, I think the offense is going to be significantly better. It doesn't have to be phenomenal because they're already, they've already got a good baseline defensively. Um, I don't know that I would pick them to make the NCAA tournament right now, but they are going to be on the bubble all season long. Uh, I feel pretty comfortable in saying like November to March, you're consistently going to hear about Washington state and either the last four in or the first four are out. Hmm. Interesting. Um, let's move forward with our guy, Akinjo. That's how you pronounce his last name, right? Yes. I had to find out for the piece I wrote. (laughs) Do you know how you do it? This is a little trick for you as this blue jay pops up on my mantle over here. Shout out to blue jays. Beautiful birds. A lot of them here in Knoxville. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's watch a lot of tape. Just watch it and then listen to the announcers and they pop it up. Like, that's how I do it. Is I And then I'll roll it back. I'm like, finally, someone said it out loud. Okay, perfect. That's that's what I do. Just go down a YouTube rabbit hole for a player and then somebody will say it out loud. It never I, fails. I the best, when I was when I did, or I mean, I guess I'll still do, the uh, Tennessee game previews, the mm-hmm. best service a school has ever done in the time I've written these in three seasons uh, was for the Tennessee Colgate first round game. Colgate on their website in the roster provides an audio pronunciation of every player's name. Every single school in America should do that. Yeah. I am I'm here for it. it Especially cool. MLS too. NHL, MLS, more than anything. Like that is that is yeah. rough. I, I don't know how NHL play by play guys do it. And honestly, MLS guys, like it's just it's too difficult. Too difficult. Um but anyway, Akinjo, who watched a lot of tape of him last night as well, like he is replacing the best backcourt in Baylor basketball history in Mitchell and Butler and Teague. <laughs> like that's just no no small feat there. And he obviously, starting off at Georgetown, moving over to Arizona last year, and now finishing out his college career at Baylor and Waco, um, I, I like his game. It's just he is going to be very very different and they're going to have to play significantly different than what we saw last year i just i don't think this is going to be a group that leads college basketball on three point percentage again when i when i really examine this baylor group and genjo but i wanted to highlight him because i think he is someone who is worthy of it as closer and closer to the college basketball season because he could be such a big player and they need him to do so much and he's replacing such big shoes yeah I, I mean, I think they're going to be really good shooting again, but for them to be number one is, like you mentioned, quite tough. It's really hard for any team to shoot 41% from three over the course of a full season. I think if they end up at like 37% or better, they should be quite happy. Uh, I, I'm really curious to see how that fit is going to work, because like you mentioned, it's not like he's similar to either Mitchell or Butler. Um it's impossible to replace both in one year, but he brings some unique benefits to what they're going to run. Uh, he is going to help the three-point shooting. I mean, he's a career 40% three-point shooter, backed up pretty well by an 81% uh, free throw uh, conversion rate as the dogs bark in the background. Um, he's an excellent passer, doesn't turn it over too much. Uh, a criticism I have seen uh, is that the offense is considerably ahead of the defense, which is a minor problem when, you know, Baylor has a really good reputation as an excellent defensive program. 
but there are two things I think uh, that are going in his favor, or three really. One is that he goes from being coached by Sean Miller to Scott Drew, which is a uh, substantial coaching upgrade, if you mm-hmm. ask me. Uh, but the others are that he rarely fouls. He only committed about two per 40 minutes last year, and he can handle a ton of minutes. He averaged over 35 a game in Pac-12 play last year and still put up highly efficient numbers. I think he could become even more efficient if Baylor is able to provide a good backup for him and kind of limit him to more to 30 to 32. Obviously, you can turn up those minutes when the games matter more, but for regular season purposes, uh, if you can keep him at about 30 to 32, I think that's where you're going to get the best version of him uh, without tiring him out. Um, but it, it's funny, uh, when when you run the uh, player comparison tool on Bart Torvik's site, his closest statistical uh, comparison since 2008 is a Baylor Bear. It is Curtis Gerald's of the 2007-2008 team that made Baylor's first tournament in many, many years. But also very high on that list, Shabazz Napier, Jerry and Grant, Kalen Lucas. I'm glad you brought in Shabazz Napier, because when you watch the tape of this dude, he is Shabazz Napier reincarnated. Yes. I mean, that, it's literally who he is. He looks it, like him, too. Like, the way he rolls around, like, he's really good at navigating the pick and roll. He's really good at finding his spots. Like, his hesitation's really good. I like his handles. He's a little bit undersized for for a guard. I think he's going to I think he's gonna struggle defensively a little bit. He's not going to be able to handle the assignments that Mitchell obviously did last year and Butler. But I do think there is a lot to like. He's good at corner threes. He's good at finding his spots. Like I said, he's really good at finishing around the rim. Very clean. But, yeah, a lot of Shabazz Napier to to his game for me. Which isn't bad, because Shabazz he, Napier, very good college player. Yeah. And he's it's he's an interesting player, because he's got some weird reverse shooting splits that you wouldn't expect. 36% for his career on twos, and a hair over 38% on threes. Mm. You don't really see that very often. And last year at Arizona is actually more extreme. 36% on twos, 41% on threes. Hmm. They weren't a but, lot of Puget yeah. threes, from what I could tell. Literally, not a lot of off the dribble threes. It's a lot of catch and shoots when no. he goes around and he'll. Uh, he's pretty open, from what I saw, in a lot of his threes. But I don't think the tracking is there, like it is in the NBA. I would like to like to know that. Um, what jumps out to you about your like? You did this great piece on um, the mid range shot, and it's selection impact on college basketball what did what did you find and also just a heads up i did find where i like why i I knew i added it so i just the link i accidentally deleted it the hoop math one the leaderboard like that that one right above (laughs) it incredible that just great work by me great work um but your piece statsbywill.com where people can check it out um what did you find in your analysis well i think there's it's the most divisive shot in basketball i think at a face value the mid-range jumper where you know you can turn on really any random game or any halftime show whether it's nba college or even fiba uh and hear you know an announcer's thoughts on the mid-range shot whether it goes in whether it goes out you can hear about how that player should be taking that shot or should not be taking that shot uh you, you don't really hear layups or threes discussed in the same way i guess you do threes but no one seems to get mad over layups but um there's some good takeaways from and i spent a few weeks researching this uh spurred on by a friend of mine um 
you can still win in college basketball by taking a lot of mid-range shots. I think that should just be said up front because, I mean, let's tell the truth here. We just watched a team make the Final Four taking a billion mid-range shots per game, UCLA. Did they hit more in the NCAA tournament than they did in the regular season? Sure, but they were hitting 43% of them, which was one of the best rates in America. They're also a really good three-point shooting team at a bit over 37%. USC was also great. I mean, they had over 43% of their non-rim twos. They also had Evan Mobley, which you know mildly helps what you do. Um, but the thing is, if you want to win consistently in college basketball without you know having a great defense to benefit you or, or uh, without you know doing something else to truly benefit you, you've got to hit a ton of your mid-range shots if you're going to take a lot of them, or you've got to be super efficient on shots at rim and from uh, at the rim and from deep, which would just beg the question: Why wouldn't you take those instead? Uh, there have been fewer and fewer highly successful offenses year by year over the last decade devoting more than a third of their offense to the mid-range shot, which 10 years ago, a third used to be the average. And now it's down to about 26% of the average offense. You know, even the more pro rate, the pro mid-range cases like Michigan this past year, who uh, took about 31% of theirs from non-rim range, uh, they were far more prolific efficiency-wise at the rim and from three and honestly could have benefited by taking fewer of those mid-range shots. Hmm. What, what surprised you about what you saw? Um, there, one that really stood out that I know uh, gets talked about a ton with uh, regards to shot selection is the idea of closer mid-range twos being better shots, you know, like sort of in the 8 to 14-foot range, I know, like, subjectively, when I watched, for example, Jaden Springer pull up from 12 feet this we year. We don't have to do that. Uh, I, <laughs> I was less subjectively annoyed than I was when, say, Victor Bailey took one step inside the three-point line and took a 19-footer. I, I don't know what that says about me, but I feel like a lot of people are kind of in that same boat where you initially think, okay, if it's 10 feet or whatever, fine, that's better than taking it from 19 when i explored the data on this uh the and this is from cbbanalytics.com an amazing amazing site um the field goal percentage on two-point attempts from 10 to 15 feet this past season is 36.1 percent that is lower than the field goal percentage on two-point attempts from 15 feet out to the three-point line of 36.7 percent i i did not see that coming to be honest and it, it kind of has made me reevaluate how I will react when I see somebody pull up from 12 feet this year versus 18. Hmm. Who do you think is like next in line to make a big adjustment on this front? Who do you like, who do you think is going to adjust the most? Is there one particular team or one particular program you think will be a forward thinker in this? Tennessee. Mm. I'm just <laughs> mm. Um, I, you know, that is hard to say right now. I think an easy answer based on last year's data is going to be, number one, Iowa State is going to take a step back towards the Hoiberg direction. Mm-hmm. Last year, they had 25% of their shots at the rim and took about 37% from what I like to call other twos, which are, like we mentioned, non-rim two-pointers. I, Given their coach's background, I would be quite surprised to see that number 
any higher than like 30%, regardless of what their personnel is. I know uh, a couple others expect to go in a non non rim direction are George Mason, who were at 31% last year and have conveniently hired Tennessee assistant Kim English to be their head coach. Uh, and I want to see, I, I would really like, and I know this is probably not going to happen, to see what would happen if Syracuse went in a more rim and three friendly direction. Because if if you open up the offense to just let Buddy Bayheim take as many threes as he wanted per game, I think everybody would benefit. And they should have a little more in the way of inside scoring this season. I know they're going to kind of end up on the bubble like usual, but I would like to see what happens if they kind of become a little more, you know, quote unquote, analytically friendly. But what, what you're going to continue to see this year specifically, it wouldn't surprise me if more SEC schools adopt um, what we would loosely call the Alabama method, simply because the top three, I was glad you mentioned this earlier, the top three power six schools in terms of three-point attempt rate last year were Vanderbilt, Alabama, and Auburn, all SEC teams. It wouldn't shock me to see another one or two join them at like the 44% of all shots or above club. Vanderbilt's up there too, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, Van- Vandy ended up taking 47% of their shots from downtown. Mm. Didn't really work. Which is, it, it didn't. <laughs> I mean, I, we got to give them credit for something. They don't have much. <laughs> we don't have to give them credit. I, mean, like, I will not. I, I don't have to do it, and I won't. Like, But, like, Texas A&M got over 40% of their shots from three last year. Like, they could continue in that direction. Uh, Ohio State almost got to 40%. It wouldn't surprise me to see Michigan take more this year. Uh, they've got more outside shooting than they did last year. Um, I, I don't know if we've reached, uh, reached uh, like peak negative mid-range, where you know, right now it's only twenty-six percent of all shots, and it's sort of stabilized there. But I mean, seeing such a high—we talked about this last time—seeing such a highly prolific case like Alabama succeed to the level they did in two seasons, it's going to drive somebody to do it, whether it's a desperate program a desperate coach or somebody who's already receptive to the idea that simply pushes it to its logical extreme yeah uh i'm excited to see where it goes but i think we're just gonna we're gonna see more of that i, I can't wait for the 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 evansville of the world to do 75 percent from three like someone's gonna get to that point i mean there's gonna be a team that does 60 percent soon mm-hmm. oh i mean i know like last season the top South Dakota was State, maybe point four it was a FIU, mm. but uh, North Florida the year before got to 52%. But I mean, the way the game is trending, the next step is 55%. Uh, a team will do this. It's just, we're going to, it's going to continue in that direction until somebody is given a reason not to continue in that, that direction. I don't know if North Florida, the fan base is ready for that as someone who has family in Jacksonville and very familiar with that rowdy student section in North Florida. Um, I want to say that they have a weird mascot because I know JU, the private one, is the Dolphins. What is North Florida? I want to say they have... What is it? Breeze. Say that one more time. You were breaking up. They're the Ospreys. That's what it is. See? Ospreys. Okay. There you go. Osprey, which uh, are we sure is real? Do we do we know for certain that an Osprey is real? <laughs> Have you seen an Osprey? I, 
I would have to Google to know what it looks like, to be well, honest. I'm looking at it now. So, so it's a large raptor reaching more than 60 uh, centimeters in length and 180 centimeters across the wings. Um, it's sometimes called a seahawk, river hawk, fish hawk. It's a fish eating bird. So it makes sense for the Jacksonville okay. area. Um, a lot of hawks yeah, up here, I, though. I feel like I have actually seen this bird in Florida. Okay. Where's this your go-to bird? Florida spot for, for the beach? Well, my, my wife's family always does West Palm Beach, which is uh, I'm fine with. Uh, my favorite, uh, I don't know if this is unpopular or not, but my genuine favorite Florida spot is Miami. I really love Miami. Interesting. For what it is. Miami's just not Florida. It's a, it's a very. That's true. Like Miami, Florida I just think it's its like... own thing. When people are like, oh, I love Florida. I love going to Miami. I'm like, those are two, two very, very separate things. Like most of Florida is like South Georgia. Florida place. Mm-hmm. For sure. A little different. That That is Florida through it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Will, we can check you out on statsbywill.com. So go check that out in his latest piece. If you have not already, you can follow him with the same name, statsbywill, on twitter.com. Again, Will is here every single Wednesday to talk college basketball as we get closer and closer to the college basketball season. But, Will, we have Tennessee ba- er, ugh, not Tennessee basketball, Tennessee football next week. Uh, I will not be driving to the stadium. Uh, I'm going to guess that parking's still going to be an issue, so I will be... Uh, I will be finding alternative routes to said stadium. Are, are you planning on going? You said no, right? I am not. I tried to convince my little brother to go, and he said he needs to study. Okay. For Studying for what? Reason. In but, week two? Um, who knows? But I, so Does he listen to this podcast? My question is, Will's little brother, if you're yeah. listening to this podcast right now, um, as the sports are and as a fellow Tennessee student, uh, I would urge you, to to attend you want to go it's your first one why not you have nothing else to do on a thursday night you're not studying i appreciate the the attention to detail and i appreciate you making sure not to fall behind early on in the semester but uh i promise it'll be worth your time bowling green is the third worst football program in america right now you gotta gotta take advantage of the good tennessee moments when you can it's true it could be it could be the premier moment you never know <laughs> like we could win seventy uh, and seven. Like it's a that's in play. We'll see. We'll monitor the situation. But uh, yeah, I'm gonna try and convince them to go. We'll see. So wait, I, I do have a question actually. Mm-hmm. As a student, mm-hmm. are you allowed to just like, you know, like park your car wherever on campus, like one of the commuter parking lots, and just leave it there for the day? Like, do you have to? Get- get out of the parking lot i don't think so but the trick is not uh leaving it there it's getting the spot to leave it there uh, uh, that is the trick you can sense. get there you're fine like you can get there you find the spot you're good trick is finding it and like once you're there you're there you're you're golden <laughs> i wish you luck that's not a fun endeavor uh trying to park for ut games whether you're a or not oh i'm not doing that at all like i am absolutely ubering over i am <laughs> not even going to pretend to mess with that like basketball season i'll probably drive over but um baseball season yes. for sure but football season absolutely not i will i will not be doing that no no fair. no no <laughs> no 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 all right well well thank you so much for the time as always i greatly appreciate it i will talk to you next week my friend uh the day before 
the kickoff, but uh, basketball season inching closer and closer, more topics, more commitments, all that good stuff will will pop up before then, I'm sure. But until then, you stay safe out there. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. All right, we are good, sir. Sweet. Sorry that we haven't been able to. No, it's get the, dude. It's hard. Like I, <laughs> I'm sorry. Like it, it's hard, and I'm trying to like juggle. And I, uh, yes, it, it's hard. But we will make it work. I promise. I just, yeah, this week has been crazy. <laughs> but I promise we will figure it out. We will figure it out soon. No worries. I've been crazy busy at work lately, so I totally get it. We'll make it work. We'll make it work. I would, yeah. We'll we'll figure it out, and I'll be in touch, man. I I promise. Sweet. <laughs> Sounds good, man. All right, buddy. Will you stay safe? Have a good rest of your night, my friend, and I'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Thanks, man. See you, buddy. All right. Hello, and welcome back to the Wednesday edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast. As we roll along, I'm joined by Andy Backstrom. Andy, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Thanks, Chase, for having me on. I really appreciate it. I'm doing well. All right, man. Well, the Boston College Eagles, uh, a team that you cover for Rivals, I am very excited to talk to you and pick your brain about this this team because uh, all the hype and all the attention in the ACC goes towards North Carolina, it goes towards Clemson, it goes towards Miami. Um, not a lot of the same eyeballs are going towards Boston College. And I think it's interesting because Phil Dracovic was such a different kind of quarterback last year in this conference and um, Frank Signetti and just what their relationship is like and the, the, the pro style offense that they're running. They threw it a bunch. Like Dracovic was really, really fun to watch. He was one of my favorite quarterbacks to watch last year. What do you think the former Notre Damer will look like this uh, this fall with a full full off season with Signetti, it's going to be really interesting to track Dracovic's progression this year because there's a lot of expectations this time around. People know what kind of player he is. I think going into last season, he'd only thrown 18 college passes and two years behind Ian Book at Notre Dame, and he hadn't started a game since high school when he started Pine Richland in Western PA. So he kind of took teams by surprise. And what a lot of he did was when the play broke down, he extended plays outside of the pocket, improvised and made some highlight reel throws. So this time around, it's going to be really important to see how he plays in the pocket. Last year, when he had a clean pocket, his yards per attempt dropped from 8.6 to 7.0. And his NFL adjusted passer rating declined from 106.1 to 88.5 in that same transition from outside the pocket to in the so now the teams can kind of trap him in the pocket it's going to be really interesting to see how he performs so why do you think that was why do you think he was he was not as good and he was just so good at moving moving when things broke down versus moving uh in a clean pocket What, what do you think the reason behind that was well one thing he's talked about this summer things he wants to work on accuracy footwork decision making when the play breaks down, he's able to roll out of the pocket. He's so big at six foot five, two twenty five. He can shake defenders kind of like a Ben Roethlisberger. That's the comparison you always hear. Um, another scout said that he's a more talented Ryan Fitzpatrick. He's got that arm strength. So as soon as he gets out of the pocket, he can hurl the ball downfield and find his receiver. When he's in the pocket, I think it goes back to, again, 
footwork. Sometimes he holds onto the ball a little bit too long, and that can lead to bad sacks or just interceptions. All five of his interceptions came when he was in the pocket last year. So I think having that footwork down, that decision-making, maybe getting the ball out a little bit quicker would be good for him as far as staying in the pocket and fitting that pro-style offense. Interesting. Um, the running back depth, I think PFF has this running back room 11th of 12 in the ACC this year. Are you at all concerned about where they're at in the backfield? It's interesting because this hasn't really been a question that's been asked since the Frank, Spaz- uh, Frank Spaziani days um, at Boston College. You know, you've had A.J. Dillon before this group, and then before that you had Jonathan Hillman and then Andre Williams. You've had these big bell cow backs for a long time. And now you have this mix. It's almost a committee. Travis Levy, Alex Sinkfield, Pat Carlo, Xavier Coleman, all guys who are on the smaller side, but they believe each of them can be a three-down back, especially Travis Levy. They really love Travis. Um, he's someone that took on that scat back role his first few years at Boston College. But last year they really used him as an in-between the tackles, outside zone guy, really doing everything, as well as catching 35 passes out of the backfield. So I think that is a point of concern for this team. A lot of people want to see them improve the running game. Last year they ranked 118th nationally after being eighth the year before with A.J. Dillon and that vaunted offensive line. So I think having more balance is the key, but they've talked a lot about having more of an identity this time around in the run game thanks to having an actual full offseason and adjusting more of that zone blocking scheme that Frank Signetti brought in last year. When, let's flash forward to the end of this season. Where do you think Boston College ranks? Uh, in, in, let's say in just PFF offensive grade. Where do you think they rank? I think, I think BC will finish top five in the ACC in terms of offense, if you're going by PFF metrics. Mm-hmm. I think where this team is really going to do or die is, is the defense. Um, it's the reason why Jeff Hassett was brought in to rebuild this program. The defense was abysmal in 2019, ranked 125th nationally in total D. And that has really been the pride of Boston College throughout the 2000s. Um, aside from the Matt Ryan years, you think of guys like Luke Keekley, Harold Landry, you know, Matt Milano, John Johnson, really stalwart defensive players. And over the past few years, it's gotten a little bit away from that and I think Jeff Halfley was brought in to restore that defensive identity and they took a step in the right direction last season but getting to be a top 50 defense is what's really going to make or break BC this year so I think offensively they'll be totally fine special teams they bring back pretty much everyone defense is where it's really going to be fun to watch how much this team grows when you think about Signetti though and his style and the pro style scheme and why they're able to lure Jakovic away from Notre Dame because I think Brian Kelly compared him to somebody when he was pulling him um, to Notre Dame originally but um, do you think his scheme is and just kind of going to always be a little bit too pass heavy that fans have to kind of adjust to the AJ Dillon days being uh, just being in a different era and that this is not going to be a thing because I think about Tennessee when you talk about it where going from Pruitt and what they were trying to do last year and what Tennessee football has traditionally been Hypo is going to be the <laughs> the inverse of that in a multitude of ways so do you think that is realistic and do you do you really think that you have to be more balanced to to win big or win nine eight nine games in the ACC because I'm not I'm not so sure if the balance matters as much uh, anymore 
it's an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much the balance does matter in terms of passing success. Like, BC was great on play action last year. Mm-hmm. You know, Jakrovic's starts per attempt rose from 6.7 to 9.4 when he was running the run action, and, and that is just a testament of how much it doesn't matter if your run game is actually effective or not. You're still going to get linebackers to bite. You're still going to get defenders to bite on the run, even if it's not terribly effective. Um, as far as the, the pro-style scheme that Cignetti runs, I think it's an NFL-style scheme that really prepares players like Djokovic for the next level. I think that's something that you will see expand this year. I think the playbook was a little bit vanilla, given that there was a new coaching staff and the pandemic and the shortened offseason, no spring ball. But I think that there will be more balance. I don't think you necessarily need it, per se, but I will say that BC likes to sustain drives. Time of possession is really important. Jeff Halfley always talks about stealing possessions away from teams. When they played Clemson, they had a pair of seven-and-a-half-minute drives, and that's the reason why they were in that game. And so if BC wants to sustain drives, they need to have some kind of running game. And that's, I think, where it becomes important. As far as scoring points, I think they'll score points regardless. But if you want to actually have your offense as a different kind of defense to keep other teams off the field, I think that's where the running game is really important. Interesting. Um, Zay Flowers, we haven't talked about him yet. What, uh, what, do you, what, what do we have in store for him this fall? Zay is incredible. I mean, he's a guy that when he came to Boston College in 2019, he was really just used as a bubble screen guy, a jet sweep player, someone that didn't flourish in the Steve Davia offense. And no wide receivers really did. It was a run-oriented scheme, 12 personnel, stack the tight ends, get the ball to your running backs and tight ends. Um, but they really broke out last year, as everyone saw, six touchdowns of 20 yards or more, had three games of 160 yards receiving or more. He's someone who is a small wide receiver, but despite his frame, he can do everything. He has really good hands at line scrimmage. He can break past defenders. If he gets into open space, he's gone. We always use the metaphor of joysticks. You know, he can make guys miss easily. He's someone that I expect to fully build off his previous season in 2020, and I think you'll definitely see him at the NFL level. Um, the secondary, we talked about the defense a little bit, but the secondary was a point of contention. It was it was rough last year. Do you think it will be improved this year? Yeah, I mean, it was not great in 2020, but it surprisingly was a step in the right direction, you know, relatively when you think about it. And the year before, it was atrocious. They were allowing 285.5 passing yards per game, and it was bottoming out the ACC. Last year, they allowed 40 yards on average per lapse through the air per game. So it was an improvement, but you're right, it still wasn't great. I expect that to improve again this year. It's a really experienced defensive backfield. Um, they brought in Jaden Lars Woodbay from Florida State, who is a hybrid safety slash linebacker. Uh, Jamin Moose, who started all their games at strong safety last year, same kind of guy. They can bring in play at the second level. He can play back. Um, Decent in coverage, but a really good tackler. Jason Matry is another guy who's been spending a lot of time at free safety this summer as Deion Jones works his way back from injury. And Jason Matry is probably their most versatile defensive back. He can get to the quarterback at two sacks on 12 blitzes last year. He can cover in the slot. He can line up on the D-line in the box, pretty much put him anywhere. 
Um, and then they've got guys like Mike Palmer, as I mentioned, Deion Jones, Josh DeBerry is their best cover cornerback. Brandon Sebastian's going on his fourth year as a starter. So I think there's a lot of experience there. It's probably the most experienced part of that defense. I don't think the secondary will be the concern. I actually think their defensive line is the biggest concern going into this year. Hmm. Um, I always like asking this question for people who are in the first three years of building out a new program um, because it's it's easier said than done. And we all get excited when guys come in. Like everybody was excited about Tom Herman at Texas and then it just didn't go that way. Um, you never know. You never know uh, before they get there. And now that we're getting more of a understanding of what Halfley's going to be in BC, like what in your estimation has he gotten right since taking over and what has he gotten wrong? I think he's gotten a lot more right than he's gotten wrong. I think he was thrown into the fire having to take over. And then the athletic director, Martin Jarman, who brought him in, he's free to CLA later that year. A pandemic starts. You have to basically get to know your players over Zoom. You're a rookie head coach. You're 41 years old. You're trying to get the lay of the land. And he was only at Ohio State for a year. So coming back after seven years in the NFL as an assistant, still getting used to the college game again and learning how to be a head coach. And he did an incredible job. I think that the biggest win for them last year was just how well they handled COVID. They had over 8,000 tests without a positive. They didn't have a positive test until the final week of the regular season. They didn't have any games canceled or practices canceled. I think the culture he established is what's going to go really far. He's a player's coach. He has the respect of his guys. And that's very clear. Um, as far as coaching goes, I think he has trust in his players. I think Steve Adazio's major downfall was as great of a recruiter as he was and maybe as a developer as he was. He just didn't have a consistent in-game strategy, would not call timeouts at the right time, had a predictable play-calling strategy. There wasn't really a sound scheme that kept defenses on edge. I think even though Halfley's a defensive guy, the trust he had in Signetti and bringing in the staff that was so NFL-oriented gave this team a new look in the ACC, and I think that took surprise, everyone by surprise last year. Um, things that he probably could do better, you know, I, I think we would like to see more improvement from those defensive backs. You know, he's a defensive back guru. I think there needs to be more improvement in that secondary. It's expected, but it's something that we still need to see. Um, and, you know, the recruiting has probably been the best thing that he's done. Last year, they brought in their best recruiting class since 2004, and they're really starting to stack up and rebuild that defense. Halfley's a guy that doesn't want to live in the transfer portal. He wants to recruit. He wants to build up these high school athletes, and that takes time as, as you're starting to take over a program. But that six-win mark was incredibly impressive for a program that was playing 10 ACC games last year and was predicted to win you know, three games by some outlets. So... I think he's done a lot more right than he's done wrong. And I think really year two, you know, year two is so important, whether it's a, a band coming out with their second album or, you know, a coach taking over for the second year after an impressive first one, or even a player after a strong rookie year. Like teams know what to expect. People know what to expect. And once you have those expectations, how will you perform? And I think that's what everyone's looking forward to seeing this year. Last question, and we'll wrap up here. Um, when you look at the schedule, what does it look like to you? What, how many wins? Any landmines? What do you, What do you think? 
right now I have them at eight and four, uh, which it would be their first eight win season since 2009. I think it's finally going to come. I, I think they'll get off to a four and zero start. They've got a really manageable non conference slate. They're playing Colgate in the season opener, and then they got UMass, Temple, Missouri is a toss up game. I think that's their most difficult non conference game, but I think they can win that. They would go into Death Valley at Clemson, probably ranked in, in the top 25. Um, for the first time since 2018, the second time since uh, the start of the 2010. So that would be a testament to what Halfley's building. I think after that, it gets a little bit more difficult. I think NC State's going to be a game that they have to win if they want to contend for the Atlantic. Um, and I think, you know, some games later in the season, Virginia Tech's always one that can go either way. You know, who knows what Florida State's going to be with Mackenzie Milton. Maybe maybe they're going to actually get back to being legitimate in the Atlantic. Um, there's a lot of games down, down the stretch there at Tossos, but I think this is a manageable schedule. I think their ceiling is 9 or 10 wins. I think they'll hit 8. And, um, you know, certainly the bull win, too, that, that would lead them to 9. And that's all you can ask for in a second-year head coach. All right. What can we look out for you uh, on the internet this week? What uh, what can we check out? What can the good folks read and listen to? Yeah, follow me at Andy Backstrom on Twitter. We've got a ton of content coming out from Eagle Action, the site at Rivals covering Boston College. Training camp is winding down. we got season prep coming up for Colgate. Um, a lot of things in the works there at Rivals. So check it out and look forward to an ACC dark horse that is Boston College. There you go. There you go. Andy, thank you so much for making the time today. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, We'll have to check back in again soon. Thanks, Chase. Really appreciate you having me on. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.